Hey, how you doing? This is Wade with Wade for Wireless, and today I want to talk more about drones. Drones being used for commercial work, specifically for tower work. So, I got lucky, and I had an interview with Kevin Gambold of Onman Experts. He's the CEO of Onman Experts, and he's a cool guy. He really is. Neat guy, fun to talk to, easygoing. He explained to me about the commercial use for drones, how frustrated he is with the FAA, and more. I mean, he goes into drone work for commercial use, and that, yes, if you want to use a drone for tower inspections, they can be out there in 24 hours. They just need to give notice to everyone else in the tower. He knows the plan. He's the guy to talk to, and you'll hear it all in this interview. So this should enlighten you on not only the history of drones for commercial use here in the U.S., how the FAA is, uh, he thinks that they just moved a little slower than they had to. He's very blunt about it. And also how unmanned experts can actually do the work and the work that they've also done here in the U.S. They've only done one official tower job, but they've done a lot for Department of Transportation, bridge inspections, power companies, things like that. Just really a cool guy to talk to. And it, it's interesting to see how drone work commercially has evolved over the last 10 years. But I think you'll really enjoy the interview. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. First, I want to thank my sponsors. Thank you, Tower Tracker Pro. Tower Tracker Pro for all your closeout package needs. Tower Safety and Instruction for all your tower training needs. And just so you know, Tower Safety and Instruction has partnered with OnMan Experts to give you drone training. That's right, drone training for tower work. I also want to thank the Hubble Foundation for all they do for the tower climbers, HubbleFoundation.org. I'd like to thank the Tower Family Foundation for all they do for the families of tower climbers, TowerFamilyFoundation.org. And let's not forget me, I have the Wireless Deployment Handbook. That's right, the Wireless Deployment Handbook for CRAN, Small Cells, and DAS. It's an LTE Deployment Handbook. And don't forget to find the links for all of this and more at wadeforwireless.com. So I want to let you know about that now. Onman Experts, onmanexperts.com. That's right, onmanexperts.com. They're the ones out there that actually are training people and doing missions. They do it all. They're well-rounded, let's say. And they have a pretty good team. I met a few other people at Nate. They were at Nate Unite down in New Orleans this year. Just fun guys to talk to. And I didn't get to meet Kevin there, but I did meet Kevin through Tower Safety and Instruction. Kathy introduced me to him, and he, like I said, a great guy to talk to. Just fun blunt, tells you what he thinks, met with the FAA a few times, and pretty honest guy. But don't listen to me, listen to him. So here's the interview. Hey, this is Wade, and today I got Kevin Gambold on the line from Unmanned Experts. He's going to talk to us about the FAA, about drones, and how it's going to change the industry, at least the wireless industry. So, hey, Kevin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Wade, good to meet you. Um, I'm having a deja vu event here. So, I, um, hi, Kev Gamold. I, as you can tell by the accents, have uh, come from further ashore than most. I, UK Royal Air Force uh, military flying tornado fighter bombers for, well, 20 odd years or so. And I had the opportunity to come over to America, uh, fly with the US Air Force's predator program for four years. Uh, and really was uh, was bitten by the bug. I, I came because it was Las Vegas, and I stayed because it was drones. Um, the, <laughs> you, you see the capabilities of these things uh, in the military side, and then having percolated on that for a few years, I retired, started a consultancy firm called Unmanned Experts, now into training and managed services. But the, the concept being just seeing 
the, the tremendous utility that these things have, all shapes and sizes. Obviously, things are very slow on the uptake. The regulations are, are, are causing us some problems. But I, I think everybody is starting to wake up, starting to get the clue. But in the U.S., in other countries, I'm afraid, uh, no matter what you think, they're ahead of us over here. So they are starting to see uh, where it could go. And the rules are starting, hopefully, to come in to make it a, a make the reality uh, possible. So with the rules, the FAA, and, and uh, I <laughs> I got to tell everyone, I'm having Kevin go through anything because my recorder crapped out, so thank you, Kevin, appreciate it. But the FAA, like like I said before uh, when we talked earlier, I didn't want to blame them, but, but obviously you felt different because I thought they were just overwhelmed with all this drone stuff, but you seem to think different. So I wouldn't blame them. What, what do you think? Well, I'll get off the fence here, and I'll say they have been appalling at this. I mean, it is anybody that's been monitoring the drone space can can have nothing but a shock at how badly it has been handled. And, I mean, to put things in perspective, it took NASA less time to get to the moon than it took the FAA to write a rule about uh, sub-55-pound UAVs. And even then, they messed it up. So, <laughs> I, I, admittedly, you are right. There are two sides to every story. They were underfunded. They didn't have the right people. There weren't the right people. There isn't a lot of people with small UAS experience out in the, in the public sector. So, you know, uh, they, they were... And they were demotivated. Why would they, when all of their shareholders and their, um, you know, their compadres are manned aviation, bringing in this unknown? So I don't, uh, I feel for them, but I definitely blame them. And there, there should be no doubt that, although it's great to say that, you, you know, U.S. lead the world, they do not in this front. When you look at Europe and Australia, even Malaysia, some of these countries are way ahead in the adoption of UAS. And it's not because your airspace is more difficult or busier or your regulations are more stringent. It's just because you didn't get it sorted. Everyone else has very similar problems. So good to see, though, that now they have people in place, who Gibson, et cetera, who really are, they can make a difference. And we're watching the regulations change and get updated on a weekly basis now, uh, and it's very encouraging. So we see, we see great potential over the next couple of weeks, uh, even months, and I, you know, I, think, I think we're going to be looking at a very different environment, certainly in the next year. So with the FCC, and I, I don't know much about the FAA, but with the FCC, they bring in industry experts, like, like OEMs, different companies, consultants, integrators, when they make a decision on something new, does the FAA do that, or do they try to do everything internal? Do they bring do they bring someone like you in to ask your advice on this, or how do they do it? Do you, can you explain? I can, and they do. They do for the most part. But I, I would wonder if your feelings are the same if I describe how this goes down. So they get industry experts in. But when you look at the list of experts that they provide, and they've done probably three rulemaking committees over the last couple of months even, one on the registration piece, which came out of nowhere. They're looking at one on a small UAS regulation. So they are bringing in people. But you look at the people and you think, for the most part, these guys, who, who are they? I've either never heard of them. 
I've been in the industry for five, six years, or I know them and I know that they are they're Washington folks. So I once sat at a dinner where a number of to be nameless, um, basically uh, Washington-based firms who have a lot of what's the word? We're looking at a lot of weight in the Beltway, but no experience at all. And I sat at this dinner and I said, "Okay, who around here?" has even flown a drone. And one of the guys puts his hand up. He was a he was a Washington man for a very large group, uh, the largest group, Man Systems, and he said, Well I have a para bebop, which is, you know, something you give your your eight year old niece. So and that was it. <laughs> that was so much experience in that room. And yet they are often the ones who are providing the FAA with subject matter expertise. And it is, so, you know, the word, you put rubbish in, you get rubbish out. I'm paraphrasing slightly. <laughs> you could almost, almost expect those results. So I wonder if with the FCC you see the same thing, that, you know, the, the characters that they drag into these meetings aren't necessarily the ones that know what they're talking about. Not always the case. There are some great there are some great characters that have been on these, but unfortunately they have definitely been in the moment. In my humble opinion. Hey, that's that's all you can do is call it like you see it, what I was trying to say. <laughs> so I mean it it is disappointing though. You think that's why things are moving so slow, just because they don't know what to do, or do you think I know you said they were underfunded, but let's face it, drones are really a a big deal. I mean, you just think they would have done something Two years ago, and it just—I mean, at least two or three years ago. And why they haven't done very little? Why they've done very little? I was going to say they haven't done anything, but I guess I don't know if that's fair or not. <laughs> what do you What do you think? Well, um, they were mandated to do something in <laughs> in 2012. So finally, Congress said, "You've got to do this as part of the Reauthorization Act." They didn't fund it. They didn't add new people. So of course. Uh, everyone in the FAA go, okay, somebody in here has got to do something. But in addition, they didn't tie it to anything. They didn't say, if you don't, this is going to happen. So, of course, everyone sat on a happy, you know, um, government salary going, okay, so we missed that deadline. Who got fired? Nobody. All right, next. Next deadline, gone. Oops, nobody fired. So, you know, in, in, from an incentive perspective, it was a complete fail. And, of course, there's a new reauthorization act for them on the cards. Uh, it's gone through the Senate. They're looking one in the House. And there, there is some hope that they go, all right, you've got to do this or we are going to hold you to uh, account. But who knows? It's a very large government entity. And, you know, I guess it's probably the best we should expect. Sad but true. It's crazy. I can't believe it. So, well, moving on, I know the FAA is uh, apparently a hot subject for you. <laughs> a sore subject for you, I should say. But Well, you know, I, I, I know you can buy a T-shirt which says, Federal Aviation Administration, we're not happy until you're not happy. <laughs> so, now, I didn't make that T-shirt, so I can't be the only person. Doing this. <laughs> yeah, good point. Good point. Let's talk about like in the industry. So, when you, how long ago have you uh, like when you came to the states and started actually using drones for commercial use? How long ago was that? Well, 
legally, the entire, although there was some gray area, effectively the FAA had banned commercial operations in 2007. So we started uh, the company in 2009, and we came over to the States about uh, 2010, incorporated. And we were just a consultancy firm because commercial operations just were not at stake. Not only that, this was pre-Phantom, you know, pre-DGI product. So mass, small UAS, you know, especially the high-tech ones that we see now, they just weren't available. Uh, and this is this is a constant theme: is that the technology in the open marketplace is eye-watering, and we are looking at stuff that the military don't have available at Target. You know, so, you know, some of, yeah, some of the citizen avoid technology, some of the computer vision, some this is so cutting edge, and it's boxed in China and sent over here in the thousand load. So, um, it, and it. Year on year, this, this technology advancement increases, and it's a, a fascinating world to be in, not only on the drone side, but all automation, all automatic, you know, self-drive cars. I mean, that is that's going to be touching all of our lives very soon. So if you own a Tesla, yeah. it already does. So it, it's commercial operations, though, came out of the 2012 Act as a, a, a almost a one-line exemption. It's called a, a 333 exemption. And it basically said, no drones until we have it all sorted out. Oh, by the way, if the FAA believes that you won't endanger the national airspace, then you could do something, maybe. So that was it. It was a complete throwaway line. Nobody thought anything would come of it. And we were wrong. It was, it was in there, either by hook or by crook. And People started to write very long, lengthy legal arguments, which the FAA accepted to their credit. And so suddenly the Section 323 exemption became de rigueur. It was the only, still the only way you could legally fly a drone for money. Um, now, when it started out, it was brutal. It was a very long legal document, uh, each one individual to each aircraft type. You needed a lawyer to draft it up. They were charging, I, I heard $50,000 that was one of the most expensive. Who knows? I mean, we charged about 3000 to, to write one, and you could probably write your own, to be quite honest. But that, uh, then you needed to get a certificate of waiver authorization, which was, so the first one took four months. The second one took at least two months, and it was location dependent. You had, every time you wanted to move, you had to wait another two months. It was just very bad. Um, wow. But, you know, within, that was uh, probably mid-2014, and by, uh, yeah, by by the end of, by mid-2015, a lot, some common sense had come to play. So there were, it was faster, they were doing mass sort of stamp approvals, you could do number of aircraft, and you wouldn't have to wait there, you could fly anywhere you liked, up to 200 feet. So since the middle of last year, it's been legal and almost commercially viable to use these things. So a lot of, a lot of uh, potholes in that particular road, but uh, it, it's been out there. And it's getting better. And with a Part 107, it's going to make it even easier. Because at the moment, you have to be a manned pilot, you know, and a manned pilot's license to operate one of these three-pound you know, pieces of plastic. So... <laughs> And that's 
you know, that's an ask. If you aren't a manned pilot and a drone operator, then, you know, how do you do it? What do you do? So it's, it's been a bit. We have, we've actually trained a couple of uh, drone operators to be manned pilots, and we've hired in a couple of manned pilots to be drone operators. So it's, you know, six and one, basically. So to fly a drone for commercial use, you have to be a pilot and you have to be a certified drone operator? Is that how it works? Well, it, ironically, you have to be a certified manned pilot with an FAA license. But there's no such thing as a certified drone pilot. None at all. So the FAA require you to have a manned license, but don't require you to have an unmanned license because it doesn't exist. Wow. When's that going to happen? That is think? supposedly the Part 107. That's hopefully in the next two months. This thing is going to come out with uh, what is called a... Uh, operator, uh, unmanned operator certificate, I think. And that is the literally the license you're going to have to say, hey, I can fly these things legally. And you will have to do some training. You have to take a test. But therein lies the rub. If you, if you talk to a manned pilot and say, hey, how much training did you do? They will say, I did 50 hours. And they mean 50 flight hours. They were airborne flying the controls, and their test was in the air. There is a reasonable chance, a terrifying prospect, actually, that the training you have to do for a drone is online. The test you have to do is a written test. The amount of flying you have to do to get a license may be zero. Wow. If you turn around and say, listen, we spent nine, maybe even 11 years thinking of how to best safely integrate your ass into the national airspace, and we've decided it's an online test. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. That doesn't but, make any sense. Cause, but I would, I mean, I, would happily, I, would, oh. I would happily take federal money for 11 years to come up with another way to do that. <laughs> it's a good way to round that out. Hey, so yeah. with a man pilot's license, I mean, you have to go up with a pilot who's probably a certified instructor, right? So why yeah. wouldn't they do that with the drones? Why wouldn't they just set up a very similar program? I mean, especially after all they put us through, the long wait, everything we had to do, you know, everything you have to do now to fly a drone commercially, why would they go the other way and make it so simple to get a, an unmanned drones license, an unmanned aerial vehicle license? I... I don't know, and I'm sure there are greater, I'm hoping there are greater, wiser minds, you know, and efforts afoot, because they, they mandated a registration over last Christmas, and they've had 400,000 people register. So, if you can imagine, so there are 400,000 people out there that care enough and read enough about it to know how to register and pay $5 to do so. Yeah. Um, so let's assume there are six or seven hundred thousand people out there who are, you know, droners, as it were. You know, half of them don't care or don't want to put their information into a federal system and pay five dollars for the privilege. That's a lot of people. Well, if you then mandate that each of them has to do ten hours of flying with a bunch of instructors that the FAA has no way to certify without grandfathering him because they have no instructors of their own, the, the program alone to start that up would cost several billion dollars, I suspect, and take about 10 years. So 
they're, maybe they're just they're just being practical. Maybe they're saying, look, look, this is the best we can hope for. Let's tell them where not to fly and hope they don't. Do you think they just don't know what to do? you think it's that simple? They just don't know what to do? I don't know. I, I can tell them what I think, which is, yeah, they don't know what the hell is going on. But, you know, I'm part of me is hoping in a conspiracy theory way that this is part of a big plan, a big cunning plan, and in the end we'll all go, oh, I see. Oh, well, I just totally missed that. <laughs> and then I'll be happy. <laughs> I wouldn't hold your breath for that outcome. I think uh, yeah, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm wearing blue. I don't want to look blue. So. <laughs> so you've been doing this for a long time. You're doing training. You're doing consulting. You do a lot with drones. But what do you do specifically now? Like, who, I don't know if you can say who your customers are, but let's say, do you look at utilities? I know your company has done work for tower companies because I, I – you know, I, when I was out at Nate, I talked to people about that. So, who are your main customers now, and what do you do for them specifically, like with drones? Well, towers are new to us. That's why we, we went to Nate. We decided earlier this year, okay, this, we have been uh, operating predominantly pilot programs, actually, for a number of Department of Transport, state Department of Transport. So, they have looking at specifically our Forte's bridges. Uh, and, you know, and you've, you've seen they close a lane off of the bridge or they shut a rail bridge down and they put this upside-down cherry picker out there and, uh, you know, they, they float a barge in and so they can get in and space. You know, bridges are very inhospitable areas to look at and they're dangerous. So it, it, to use drones in these very high-def cameras, they will cooperate. If you get the right ones in, in pretty scotchy weather conditions, then suddenly, I mean, the, the effects you see on these engineering firms that do, and we we would be we're subcontracted by engineering firms that are currently doing DOT inspections. So let's say Minnesota, we've done a program for them uh, over the last year. They they have a, an inspection firm that does their bridges to check that you know they're not falling apart. And of course, you know the infrastructure on the planet in the U.S. is a little bit. Um, we say aging, mature. Um, <laughs> so there's a lot of issues there, and you know they're closing lanes on bridges and they're restricting uh, weight that are passed over them because really the foundations are crumbling. They do these inspections, and we then come in and bring a drone, and we're all we're testing the waters to see what you can and cannot do with these things. And for the most part, it's pretty pretty astounding. I mean, you can really get in close in both. EO and I take you know normal camera operations and infrared and we even have uh, the multi-spectral gate and see what the issues are really in the dangerous environment and you can see them very easily so there's some great work so DOT has been one of them uh, we've done the utilities we've been chasing utilities very hard uh, we've teamed with a group in Europe who are basically the leaders when it comes to inspecting transmission towers you know these big high voltage lines and inspecting them while they're alive. Because right now, uh, every year or so, the guys climb, literally climb up those towers while they're still alive with, you know, 137 kilovolts. And they look and 
see if any bolts are loose, see where the rust is, see if the insulators are cracked, etc. So the ability to do that with a drone, you can do a tower in, you know, some of the guys who are very good at it in about 12 minutes, you know, and nobody leaves the ground. So, it, and you get incredible high-definition uh, imagery. You can view it on the ground in real time. You can take pictures and beam those back to uh, the hotel, and they can send out a work team if somebody needs fixing. So, that utility, and of course, all of this translates beautifully to the, the cell tower industry. Oh, yeah, um, yes. With, with, with the infrared, and your, with the infrared fail in those towers, can you see if bolts are missing or is the HD camera good enough for that? Or if, if you know, something's coming loose or if there's a crack in the tower, do you need infrared for that or can, can you see that with the HD? No, um, the camera, most of the time, the camera is the best way to do it. And, okay. I mean, we're talking of you know, 26 megapixels in these images. Your biggest problem is how to, how to shift the data around without doing some serious compression. So the... You know, the imagery is eye-watering. I mean, it, from a transmission uh, tower point of view, you're looking at cotter pins. Cotter pins are about an inch long, and you can tell if they've shifted just by a couple of millimeters. So wow. it's really, really astounding stuff. So on the cell tower, we've only we've only assisted in one program with cell towers today. We've made a couple of inroads with some of the, uh, the tower owners, and we're talking to some of the... Um, uh, some of the rad owners, but the it, it's new again. It's new, and even AT&T put out a request for proposals last year, um, last November, and so they're just starting to use it. There's a couple of um, there's a couple of companies that I think are very well established in using it and proving the case. Nobody is really at revenue yet, but they're doing some good work, and I think uh, I think the the tower industry might be one of the first to adopt it whole scale. I really do, because one tower, it has five or six clients on board, including the owner, and it, it becomes a very good revenue piece. And the accuracy of these things, the you can see the state of workmanship and the tower build, whenever they've added new equipment up there, and, and you can get azimuth readings. I mean, it really is quite... Uh, quite astounding the dates you can get off the flight. I think it'll be impressive once it takes off for a lot of reasons. I see so many inspections done, and I don't just mean tower inspections. A lot of times when the guys are working on the tower, they may have a question, which is hard to show somebody down below, where they could send a drone up, look at what the guy's working on, you know, close up in video, and they could even guide them through what they're doing. That way the guy in the tower has both hands to work. The drone's over there taking the picture, and he can just have an earpiece in and listening to the guy down below telling him what to do or what not to do. I see it for that. I see just inspections. Oh, you'd save so many climbs a year if a drone could just go up and do inspections. <laughs> that would be that would save a lot of time and money, you know. And then you could in, have one in guy the right there. hand. You're absolutely right, Wade. The right hand. I mean, the guys. These drones are getting smarter. I'm talking about the tech piece, and really, we don't see the future in having a. a a lot of teams out in the field. We see the future in understanding how to acquire the data, maybe training people, because when the 107 comes out, when it's easier, when the barriers to entry are lowered, there will be no reason why these engineering firms don't have their own, well, no, yeah. there are a number of reasons, but you know, the, 
no really, really strong reasons to say why they don't look at investing in having this as their own capability. And so we want to be able to help them develop that capability, help them train their teams, and use them because, unfortunately, it is rubbish in, rubbish out. If you don't, you're not acquiring the right data, then you're not actually doing your clients any favor. Well, the other thing is, I think everyone that does work at a tower should be certified. Now, whether it's on drones, they should be certified to work at a tower. They should be trained and know what to do and what they're looking for. The same thing as tower climbing. Like in the old days, anyone went out to climb towers. But the reality is, if you're a tower climber, you should be certified and trained to climb a tower. You know, Even if it's your first time, you should have some type of training. And I, I feel, to, and with test equipment, I know that's something a little different, but when you use test equipment in the field, if you're not certified, the test really doesn't mean anything, even if you know how to do it. If you're not certified in that equipment, it doesn't matter because that's what they're going to want to see. They're going to see, want to see that the test equipment is calibrated and that the user is certified to use it. I feel it's the same way with drones. I feel I, I, use... I'm in violent agreement. In fact, our first foray into this was teaming with um, Kathy, you know, I think, you know, Kathy Brand, that's tower safety and instruction. And the, we put together a training course for tower climbers because, and it's for tower climbers to use drones. I mean, this is the idea. These guys are already qualified. They understand it. So we, we just want to bring this as an extra tool. You said to yourself, why climb if you don't have to? You, know, yeah. you could maybe double the number of towers if you've got a fast car. You can get done in a day. So, you know, if you stop and you have to climb them, you have to. But at least you know you've got a pre-climb survey and you've done it safely and maybe you can get all the data you want just from a flight. Flight can last 15 minutes. That's it. You're done. Pack up. Let's go home. That's what I think. I think, and the safety issues alone, why send someone up in the air if you don't have to? Now, don't get me wrong, there's times when you're going to have to. Obviously, Agreed. I still totally have to work agree. on the tower. Yeah, and we're not those guys who say, the answer is drones, what's the question? We really are. I mean, <laughs> you know, the weather gets sucky, and then you need a very, there's a very few drones that, that can really crack, you know, winds over about 30 knots, and there are times when you've got to strap on and climb up. But there are some of the aircraft can be airborne when you can't be climbing. So, yeah. you know, if you get the right kit uh, and the right training, uh, you could be in a good place. But as I said, oh. I, I totally agree. You're going to have to climb the damn thing one of these days. So don't forget how to. When you're training people to use the drones, what, what's the, like one of the top three things you emphasize when, to train them to work, say, at a tower or the electrical guys working at a power line, what are the top three things you emphasize as far as rules go with taking a drone out for commercial use? Well, we have all the, all the rules and the regulations and the best practices. And, now, yeah, obviously we, we put stuff back. And to me, I mean, there is, there is a fingers and thumbs piece here. And it's not, it's not easy. If you ask any old, uh, old school remote control pilot. You know, when the thing's flying towards you, everything's backwards. And you've got to uh you've got to understand that. And now with the drones and with the imagery being beamed down to you, traditionally now you're in what's called a first person viewing situation. So you're looking at what the drone sees. But then it becomes difficult because you've got to crew resource management. You have to manage. You have to have your visual observer is checking the airspace, making sure you're not getting too close to the tower. 
making sure there's no rad issues, make, you know, discussing weather, uh, looking at the battery life. You need a, a sensor operator, somebody that's looking at the screen that says, okay, that, that camera is good. We need to come to the left. We need that shot there. And then the pilot needs to have his situational awareness. Where is the aircraft? You know, it's 180 feet up around the other side of this tower. Difficult to see. And he's got to, he or she has got to have the understanding of where it is relative to you, how long it will take to get back, what if we lose the link, what if one of the motors ends up. I mean, there's all sorts of issues. So it's, it's not an easy job. You have to train people on the fingers and thumbs piece and then the crew coordination and then putting that all together in a, in a mission, in a sortie to get the data for the client. It's difficult. I mean, it is difficult. Before you go out to do a job, you guys literally have, you look at it as a mission, and you have defined what you're going to do, how you're going to do it. I mean, how, how does that work? Before you even go out, do you know exactly what, what the plan is? I mean, do you put together an official plan, or how's that, how do you do that? Well, uh, because there are a number of regulations that can hamper the job, as soon as we have one come through the wires or somebody phones in, we do a first look. We look at the airspace, see whether it's legal to operate. We look at the ground space, make sure that we can get standoff distances, make sure we can do everything safely. And if that looks good, then we do a pre-site survey. And we go through a number of checklists. We do it all remotely. We can pull in you know, different software tools and, and have a look at where we want to fly, what we want to do. And you really have to beat out of the client what they want because even, you know, even though we've been talking about drones for a number of years now, people still aren't sure what they can get or what they should ask for. So there's a fair amount of work goes on. And, of course, once you've done a couple of bridges, a couple of towers, a couple of transmission lines, you're pretty, pretty certain you know what they're going to need out of this. And there's a lot of mapping missions go on as well. So you have to talk about Photographic overlap, uh, ground control is very important when it comes to a lot of these mapping. And uh, that might mean hiring in surveyors because they are state-based. They have to be state-certified. So, you know, there, there are many hoops to jump through. When you get out into the field, though, uh, you can power to a pinch of salt. You're going to fly your initial mission, and it's going to go pretty close to how you planned it. And then the client's going to take one look at the data and say, you can do that. <laughs> Holy smokes. And I'm not kidding. You'll be flying the entire mission again, this time in a different sensor or with a different standoff or focusing on something else because they've gone, you know what? We didn't ask you about it, but we really need to see this. And it's fascinating. It really is fascinating. The guys come back. We do a lessons learned piece and we go, you they did what? Oh, okay. Didn't see that coming. And then we roll that into the drone. I mean, it really is fun. I mean, it's a great, it, it's still a very nascent industry to be in, and there's a lot of less picked up. And, you know, it, it's, it's good. The guys are interested. It's not boring. Boy, the lessons learned, that's a great idea because that's something everyone should do <laughs> because there's so many, every time you go out, it seems like you run into new problems or new issues. So, yeah, the lessons learned, that, that's a great thing to have under your belt. Well, it's a military thing, but in our military, in the Royal Air Force, and it's, I think they're all the same, these big industries, they have a, they have a corporate memory of about 20 minutes. So <laughs> we officially, in the Royal Air Force, changed our lessons learned program to lessons identified. And it was because after the 
second Gulf War in like 2003, they had this long list of lessons learned, and somebody pointed out that they were exactly the same list as in 1991, <laughs> as in 1954 from Korea, <laughs> as in 1944 from the First World War, the Second World War. So you're going, so did we really learn those lessons, or did we just write them down? So fortunately, we don't suffer from this, uh, you know, this large company inertia so we're pretty sharp and if somebody screws up something that we learned on the last one then the debrief is uh is pretty short and sharp oh that's funny so let me ask you something what like as far as your favorite drone do you have a favorite drone or what do you guys use in your business if you don't well we we do we have about eight different types some there's two or three variants of the pgi phantom which we use for training but um, and we we like them for different reasons. The the number one that we've been using is a very expensive but extremely high end platform called the Arian Sky Ranger. The, the great thing about this is it's got a, a, a barkingly mad battery life. It can be airborne for about forty five fifty minutes, which is really unheard of. It's practically waterproof. I mean, we operate it through a tablet, and we're having to wipe or just pour the water out of the tablet while it's airborne, because it keeps, the rain keeps pooling on it. I mean, it's really good. And it's exceptionally good in wind. It's just rock solid. Uh, wow. It's like it's on a stick. So um, for those, for the bad weather, and let's be honest, see, we're going up to Minnesota and we're looking at bridges up by the lakes. Well, yeah, oh. the weather isn't going to be sunshine and, and uh, you know, a light breeze. So that's a great platform. But it's expensive, and, it, you know, it has some tremendous sensors. But anyway. So that's our number one. Our number two is a, a system called the Falcon 8, which is a European system. It's just been starting to be sold over here. Uh, it's designed for inspection. It doesn't have a very long battery life, but it's really good in non-GPS environments. So you get tucked under a bridge, you know, the Sky Ranger is going to start acting a bit odd. But you tuck under a bridge with these things, and it, the way the camera is oriented, it can look straight up. So that is a tremendous platform, and the, the payload, again, is very good for that. So that's our number two go-to bird. And then, actually, down the, the other end of the pie scale is the DJI Inspire, which is kind of the big brother of the, the com commercial consumer phantom. And it just it has some tremendous optics. It has a great IR system now. has a pretty decent battery life. It's just easy, cheap-ish and cheerful, and you, we always carry those as a backup anyway, but there are some times when you go, you know what, uh, I think the Inspire will crack this, as long as the weather's not an issue, and it does, and the guys like to fly it, because it's very, very hands-on. I never thought about it. Do you carry a backup with you every time you do a mission? Yeah, yeah, because this is high-tech stuff. It travels. We have, not, we have not gone through a single TSA checkpoint and not had a drone broken. Oh. We have a hundred percent record of TSA breaking our drones. So all the payloads, so it's it's incredible. It's it's we've put in several TSA complaints and they've all gone to nail. But um, so we we ship these things where we can. We drive them where we can. Uh, we try and stay away from an airport. We know we're going to lose one, so we always take at least one backup. Things they're, they're still. They still only weigh five, six pounds. They're high-tech, and they're prone to break. So you've got to have spares for spares. Like the special ops mentality is 
two is one and one is none. So take a spare or don't go is the answer. It makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. I was wondering uh, one more thing. When you guys, when you go out to do a, to do a job, is it just, do you usually just have one guy? Like when you're actually doing the flight and the photography, or do you take two people out? Uh, the, the triple three exemption, so the uh, the clearance to operate commercially requires two. Oh, we, okay. yeah, you need to have a visual observer because the pilot is head down for the most part, looking at the, the sensor image, looking up at the aircraft, but he has very little awareness of what's going on around him. And we have a mandate. If people walk into the flying area, we need to either clear them out of the way or stop flight operation. He's not going to know until someone taps him on the shoulder and says, Hey, dude, what are you doing? Um, <laughs> so we have a center of a, a visual observer who sits there um, shepherding people out of the way and looking for other aircraft, etc. So providing that big picture view. So we always deploy with two. Um, we sometimes deploy with three, depending on the job. If it's very specialist um, knowledge that we have in-house, then we will deploy a center operator as well. Uh, but what we'd like to do is that we like the client to provide the center operator because they know the data they want. And normally these guys are certified. They are, you know, tower climbers or inspection engineers. or Maybe there's a requirement for them to be unionized, as there are in California. So there'll be a unionized guy, and they will be, uh, they'll sit there and say, okay, no, we want that data. We don't want that. We definitely want that. So it's good. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, the system works very well. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So your whole team, like I don't know how big your company is. How many pilots do you have on your, like, in your company? Well, we, we have sitting around or doing, out on jobs. And then we've got guys up in Illinois. Uh, we've got guys doing some training in Colorado. Um, we, we boast four teams. If, or, and we've got equipment for most of those at the same time. If we had to uh, deploy all four with very specific equipment, then we'd be, we'd be reaching out to some friends. Okay. If, we not, if we needed to upscale, uh, we've got an onboarding plan for up to 10 teams in probably six weeks. Um, you know, reality bites, it'll probably be two months before we can do that. Um, wow. So I, I'm looking forward to having that as a problem. When they go, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I want people to open up our little hangar space and go, where are all the aircraft? And they go, oh, yeah. <laughs> That'll be a great day, won't it? Well, I think someday it's going to open up. It's just... Oh, I, I am absolutely in there. I mean, as, as we always say, we're just one phone call away from being short-staffed. So, you know, it's it's when... Graham Castle call us and say, look, we got 200 towers and they need to be done in 30 days. And we go, okay. <laughs> Execute plan Foxtrot. And, uh, and we do it. We make it happen. So. Oh, that's funny. Well, I, I can see it happening someday. It's just the FAA has to straighten everything out. They're getting there. Yeah, bless their consoles. They're getting there. So we just gotta we gotta do things like this way. We gotta get word out that literally people don't know that right now if you called me, I could have a team legally flying your tower in 24 hours. And the 24 hours is the no tam requirement. We need to put a a legal notice to airmen out uh, on the wires so that all aircraft know we're going to be there. That's it. Okay. We can legally 
charge for services and provide you that data in 24 hours. And no, people don't know that. People still think it's illegal or immoral or, you know, just plain wrong. And it isn't. So get the word out. Tell, tell your friends. <laughs> tell everybody. Let me, I got one more thing here. What, like, do you cover the whole U.S.? I mean, how far can you cover? Well, we had a team training the South African Civil Aviation Authority. We had another group down in Singapore, and we've been uh, coordinated to do some work in, um, I'm doing them a huge disservice, uh, Bolivia. So um, that's, where, that's how far we'll go out. We've been up to Canada a couple of times, and then I probably am looking at a, state, a map of the states now. So we've, uh, we've, done, we've done some, well, we've done some work in New York. We're been fixing to our first job in California. We've done Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, Colorado, um, Wisconsin, Michigan, no, not Michigan, Minnesota, and uh, Illinois. So there you go. And we, and we know some really nice people in Georgia and Tennessee. <laughs> that helps, doesn't it? It's nice to know some nice people. <laughs> well, because, you know, if you've, if you've got a, a set of partner companies and they have the same ethos, the same training, and, you know, we're all pretty small operators right now, then, yeah, we have a bit of a, uh, a bros network. So we can, we can recommend some guys in your neighborhood if, if you want it. Just like Oh, me. that's good. Yeah, cool. Well, that's about all I got. Do you have any parting words? Anything you want to say to the, uh, to the listeners? Well, if it's the FAA, I apologize for being harsh, but you guys are on track, and, um, and please be a part of it. If it is some of the clients or tower owners out there, then just give it a chance. Uh, it, there's some great work being done very safely, and uh, you know we'll run a pilot for you, and, and be, it'll be proof positive. And if it's uh, any people that want to get into this program, into the drones, then trust me, it, it's doable. Uh, it's it's going to be the future. So don't be that guy saying, hey, I think this internet's a fad because um, <laughs> people are going to quote you on that in 20 years and you're not going to be happy about it. So same with our drones. They're here to stay and they're pretty awesome. If you're flying, fly safe. I, I think it's going to change the way work is done. And I, unfortunately, I think it's not going to be for about five years till we really see an impact on the industry for all the reasons you've given in your call. But boy, when it does, it's just going to, it's going to boom. I mean, I just I just see everybody going this way. It just makes sense. And I hope everybody gets certified. That's my big thing. You know, I just want everyone to be trained properly. Well, we do that too. Head out. Well, Kevin, right. Kevin, thank you. I appreciate you doing the interview. I appreciate being on my podcast, and I wish you the best of luck. Thanks, buddy. Okay. So can we just confirm that it recorded this time, or do you want us to do it again? <laughs> Let's hope it recorded this time. <laughs> Great. Hey, a pleasure, Wade. And um, hey, if you you can put my details up on the, on the site, and if anyone wants to get in touch, then uh, please do. And that was it. Thank you, Kevin, for doing the interview. Thank you for listening. If you've gotten this far, I appreciate all of you listeners. I really do. Thanks for all you've done for me. Thanks for all you've done for the industry. I appreciate it. And remember, Wade for Wireless, W-A-D-E, the number four, wireless.com. Go there for more information. Be smart, be safe, 
and pay attention to what you're doing because it matters. We need you around, okay? See ya!